0: This is Nathaniel Cogley. And this is Eric Morrow. Welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. We're glad you are joining us either live uh, or taped to live on (laughs) Sunday afternoon uh, at noon right here on KTRL FM 90.5 or by podcast, uh, wherever your source is for that, SoundCloud, uh, through our Facebook site. However you're doing, however you're joining us uh, following uh, the live or the broadcast of this show, we're glad you're listening to us and joining us, especially because we had a very interesting, engaging, and unique week that just changed the direction of the presidential uh, race for this year. Uh, Just so many things that happened, and we're going to try to... To go through those things step by step and say what well, look and analyze what actually did happen.
1: Uh, they don't call it Super Tuesday for nothing. No, uh, no, yeah, they 14, don't. Fourteen, 14 states. Each one of them is interesting. Fourteen of them. Five of them also had primaries for other slots: senators, representatives, uh, state representatives. There is so much to analyze coming out of Super Tuesday. I think we're going to start with. Uh, presidential nomination contest in the Democratic Party, but there'll be more for later in the show. But uh, a lot of developments in the race to be nominee of the Democratic Party. Um, Eric, we saw when we left off last time, we were assuming Biden was going to win South Carolina. He did, and he did big. And then as we got closer into Super Tuesday, we had made a good prediction on the last show. We had said, I said, I, I don't think Pete Buttigieg is going to have a good night. He had had a nice run in Iowa, New Hampshire. Very impressive that he was able to uh, do so well in those states after he got the voters of those states to know him. But he just was not polling elsewhere. And it was going to be a bad night for Pete Buttigieg. I think he might listen to the show, Eric, because he kind of figured that out. He drops out before Super Tuesday, endorses Biden. On the eve of winning her home state of Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar also drops out supports Biden. The week going into Super Tuesday was like exceptionally good for Biden. Number one, the debates before Nevada, Bloomberg was under attack, not Biden. No one was seeing Biden as the, the, the front runner there. The debate before South Carolina, Sanders was under attack, not Biden. Everyone saw Sanders as the front runner. Then we have this wave of people dropping out, endorsing Biden, the win in South Carolina. It turned into a great super tuesday for former vice president joe biden
0: it it really did not so super for many other candidates but we were talking last week that this would be down to a two person race that 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 there was the the possibility here of, of not just some coalescing here but but what would be the outcome i don't i don't think we exactly knew how uh, what the outcome of that that would be and how Uh, where Bloomberg would be in all of this, because this was the first kind of true test of his strategy. Uh, But but really something amazing happened between uh, Saturday and Tuesday for the Biden campaign. And it wasn't really about spending money on advertising. It wasn't about reaching out uh, to to uh, uh, voters. Uh, There there's a number of dynamics here. and, And really, I think that's that's where we should start is looking at what what really caused that that sea change, as we would say, uh, for Biden, who was in many of these states that he ended up winning, he was behind. The The, the polling showed that yeah. uh, over the weekend, uh, uh, before uh, more updated polling was done going into Tuesday, uh, really a lot of that stops waiting on uh, exit polling uh, to try to have a, a better picture. But but it it was very uh clear that he was behind in many of these states including texas and it turns out that he wins those what
1: what do you what do you see are some of the the factors uh, for that turnaround well i'm gonna be consistent i've never been big on the biden campaign i think he's problematic as a candidate and i think the voters of iowa and new hampshire agreed with me and they went elsewhere but when they tried to go elsewhere they didn't find another great solid alternative um Pete Buttigieg was able to do well there, but he wasn't resonating nationally for several reasons. And no one on that debate stage was able to take the baton and run with it. Um, Bloomberg, it may be hindsight's 2020. It was probably not a good idea for him to get on that debate stage in Nevada. He was under relentless attack. That was predictable. Um and Biden was not under attack at all. He sailed through that, decent performance in that debate, South Carolina debate. Everyone's talking about Sanders is running away with it. we got to do something. No one was attacking Biden. And he had a, a great vote in South Carolina. Representative Clyburn is pretty high up in the, in the House. I think he's a third-ranking House member. I think he's uh, the majority whip. I could be wrong. I think it's majority whip for Clyburn. And he gave an endorsement in South Carolina. A large African-American support for Joe Biden helped to have a very impressive South Carolina. Buttigieg realizing he's not going to succeed nationally as this thing starts going through a number of states. In the back of my mind, Eric, something that I haven't heard in the news, something that else that, ha- that helped Joe Biden, Kamala Harris never made it to South Carolina. I mean, he kind of had this, this great support in South Carolina um, and, and a high support amongst African-Americans. Um, If Kamala Harris was in it, that might have been different. If Cory Booker was in it, that might have been different. The fact that Kamala Harris had $50 million and didn't make it to South Carolina uh, was another dynamic that really helped Biden just really perform well there. And this kind of establishment coalescing around Biden, it didn't surprise us. It didn't surprise me that he won some southern states with similar demographics. It doesn't surprise me he won North Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas. But it really does surprise me that he won some of these northern states that uh, Bernie should have done very well in. Um, He won Maine. He won Massachusetts. My gosh, uh, no one thought that was happening. That was quite a surprise. Um, He won Minnesota. Klobuchar, I was not certain that her dropping out endorsing Biden, would let Biden come in first. I thought Bernie might come in first. He won Minnesota last time. So uh, he won he, he won Minnesota. And again, as I watched this on the TV, there was that focus on um, someone winning a state, quote unquote. But the way the delegates work in the Democratic Party, anyone above 15% gets delegates. So that's kind of the threshold I'm looking. But I guess it was important in the headline uh, narrative of who's quote-unquote winning states, and he just came first place in so many more states than we were expecting. And, of course, we saw this parlay into another interesting dynamic to discuss Bloomberg dropping out and then Warren dropping out.
0: Right. So so when I look back at, at South Carolina, uh, I, I think the, the Clyburn endorsement was critical. I think the, their campaign strategy along the way had been South Carolina, South Carolina, with the hopes of finishing higher than they did in Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think that's what gave cause to a lot of people starting to look at Biden and say, you know, is he really done for? Yeah. Fundraising was dropping considerably. Uh, but if you remember, he, he didn't uh, end uh, the primary in New Hampshire in New Hampshire. Right. He, he, he was already in South Carolina. Right. He was already, uh, uh, again, moving forward, not looking back at, at New Hampshire, but again making these very strong connections with his uh uh, his experience, his time in office as vice president, his r- relationship with uh, Barack Obama as president. Uh, I mean, there, the this, this same consistent message that was then supported with the endorsement. So I think that was very critical. Uh, but also what I see that transitioned out of that is when you win by almost 30 points. I mean, he, he ran away with this in South mm-hmm. Carolina. I mean, it's, it's a, a significant win. Yeah. that margin... Uh, pushed him up at, again as a viable candidate among uh, Democratic primary voters. Uh, I, I'm, my, my thoughts were, when I, f- when I saw the outcome, was uh, if that would have been less, if he had won by 10 percent, maybe even 15 percent, that we would be talking about a different outcome on Super Tuesday. Uh, I think because he won by such a large margin that – South Carolina became just as important as Iowa and New Hampshire in this race because it, 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 it was the, the key to propelling him just before that Super Tuesday back into the mix of people saying, uh, well, he, he has potential. He is seeing him as, as a possibility of someone who uh, could lead the party and then run and possibly beat uh, President Trump. Uh, so, so for me, that the numbers. I mean, I, I, I really yeah. a lot of the voters. And if you look at a lot of the exit polls on on these primaries, I mean, we're 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 junkies. We're political junkies <laughs> on these things. We're 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 in tune with this. We're watching it. We're listening I to it if every I like day. We call it a junkie. And, well, I know. Yeah, you're from San Francisco, so that may have has a little different <laughs> yeah, that, <in> the connotation <laughs> there. But but we 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 are. Uh, 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 we're political connoisseurs. I'll okay. say that. Let's oh, yeah, raise I like up the that. level. I okay, like that. the so we'll, we'll, we'll say that uh, we we uh, kind of feast on this stuff all the time uh, because we uh, we're engaged with it. We we're looking f- uh, for a level of analysis that helps us to understand it, to understand our body politic and how people respond. And I just think, a l- but a lot of people that were the rank and file are just not engaged at that level. Sure. And so when they look at the size of a win like that, I think. That went a long way among those people who were still undecided,
1: perhaps, going into Tuesday. Well, I think that's important. So not everyone's following. Some people pay attention in the last minute, last few days. They start to pay attention when their vote's coming up. And like I said, Biden was not attacked in that last week. He was not perceived by the rest of the field as the front runner. He got a pass in those debates. He was not the one that was being criticized. That was Bloomberg and then Sanders. Uh, And so people who made up their mind in the last week who haven't been following this for a year, uh, Biden had a good week. He was not under attack that week. He had an impressive win during that week. And he's got the resume that he has national name recognition. And uh, it came together in in a big way for him, so much so that uh, we saw Bloomberg drop out. And I think if we look at these results One thing that was important was Bloomberg was able to get 15% in four of the states, but it was not the big states. It was not California. It was not Texas. He failed to achieve that important 15% threshold in California and Texas. He only got 14.4% in Texas, just under that 15% threshold, and then 14.1% in California. Those states had as much delegates as the others combined. And so he did not receive delegates out of those states. Um, his number of delegates was underwhelming because of that. And I think Bloomberg, you know, as you've said before, he's into statistics. He's into data. He's into analysis. I've enjoyed hearing him. I mean, we see why he never ran in a Democratic primary in New York. Right. He avoided it and did the Republican primary in a city that's dominated by Democratic politics. Mm-hmm. He purposely avoided that. And when it comes to running for president, I've heard him articulate the 12th Amendment in a very impressive way. He says, you know, uh, if you don't have a majority of electors, it goes to the House, which is controlled by the two parties. Who, yeah, he's got it, you know, and he understands an independent run is not practical. He's avoided Democratic primaries for mayor. He now entered the Democratic primary knowing this was difficult, but I always saw his path was through a brokered convention. He needs delegates to cause the broker convention number one and then he's not in it just to cause a broker convention he wants to be selected at that broker convention so not only was the delegate performance underwhelming from for him in terms of he didn't meet the 15 percent threshold in the biggest states that he really should have um he doesn't want to do a broker convention that picks biden he wants to do a broker convention that picks him and so when he sees the establishment itself behind the scenes rallying around Biden, the way a broker convention works is second bout, the superdelegates come in, which is the establishment. And so he's not in this just to cause a brokered convention. He's in it to be selected, the nominee at a broker convention. And I think he saw that ship was starting to sail away from him.
0: Right. He'd, he'd made that very clear when reporters were asking him about uh, a brokered convention and and him throwing his support behind one of the other candidates. And, and he said his response was why Uh, Don't they throw their support behind me in a broker convention? So it's very clear that he did have that strategy and that coming out of Super Tuesday, looking at the numbers and looking at the the possibilities, the the, the wins by by Biden were so, uh, so strong. I think that that is a possibility. But this also really, if you're the Biden campaign, you're looking at this as the best scenario as well, because. You don't see, and this was a challenge for Bloomberg to answer, whether he would throw his support behind Sanders if he was the nominee. Because, remember, he had made that commitment that whoever the nominee would be is that he would support them, and the goal was to defeat Trump. And and so there, there was certainly some concern over Sanders, but I think it made it much easier for Bloomberg to make that decision at, at not to downplay these decisions. They're very difficult. Yeah. They're very challenging, they're very personal. I mean, the, the, there's uh, a lot involved in this when you're putting a hundred million dollars and or well, almost a billion, I think million. 600 yeah, million really yeah 600 million. Yeah, it was uh, in, 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 in and we'll probably put more. But for the Biden campaign that was strapped, beginning to be strapped, not only this, this additional support that will come because of, of, of the win, but to have somebody like Bloomberg, who—and and he's yet to do this this formally. We've, we've yet to see the, the impact of this, but I think we will in the up-and-coming states, is if Bloomberg starts to put those millions of dollars behind
1: Biden, uh, behind the Biden campaign. Well, once I saw the results on Super Tuesday— uh, first of all, I was not predicting this this turn of events. I was predicting a brokered convention. I've been proud of that because now that's got headline and, you know, yeah, I was looking I, good for a moment I, there. I did.
0: I did say that Warren would not do well and that <laughs> yeah, she would yeah. not survive Super Tuesday. Yeah, so. Yeah. so I was I was
1: um, predicting the broker convention. I didn't see this coming. But once I saw Super Tuesday go in, my hunch was, yeah, Bloomberg's going to hang it up. And why did I think so? Because we saw him yield to Biden a year ago. He yielded to Biden March 5th of last year when he announced he wasn't going to run for president. Mm -hmm. And and the story behind it was if Biden's in it, there's no space for him. We've seen him yield to Biden before. Mm -hmm. So the fact that now it was looking like the brokered convention scenario was a little harder to achieve. And even if he got it, he might not even win it. To see him yield to Biden for a second time wasn't a big surprise once we saw that Super Tuesday result.
0: Right. I, I agree. I think he you're right. He plays the number. he looks at the numbers. He 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 sees the strategy and the potential and the possibilities, which I would say that we'd have to question about uh, the Sanders campaign, uh, kind of looking at what numbers they're looking at in the support. We, we can talk more about that in a moment. But but it, it's very clear that he he did not see a path forward for himself with this uh, and that the potential. And, and I think this is a decision that he's making, uh, uh, not in his own interest and focus on the possibility of being president. Uh, It's about, for him now, very much so, it's about
1: defeating Trump and what's the best way to do that. I will say, although I understood it and it fits with his pattern, um, it might be premature. I'm just still not big on the Biden campaign. Biden had a good week. And like I say, he wasn't under attack. Well, here come the attack. Sanders is going to start focusing on him very hard. There's a voting record there. There's um, questionable things with, you know, Hunter Biden came, was in the news. Right. There's other things. If, if people, you know, f- search those out, um, he's going to come under attack. And we've seen the campaign struggle before. And we've seen even gaffes this week. You know, his quoting of the Declaration right. of Independence yes. was yes. quite something. 150 million died of gun violence, You know, 150 million Americans. Of course, that's half the country. Um, we've seen things. So I, I'm almost, if I was in that room when Bloomberg made that decision, I'd say, well, let's hold off. Let's wait another week. we got six more states coming up. You know, let's see if Biden can hold this when there's some pressure on him. Right. Uh, but, you know, the decision was made. And then you're right. Once Bloomberg was out, Warren felt like she might have a path through a broker convention if you had this kind of polarizing situation where it's like Sanders, Biden, Bloomberg. They're all want to be the ticket, but their supporters are reluctant to support the other ones. People like Biden, Bloomberg are reluctant to support socialist Sanders. But the Sanders people are unlikely to get behind establishment Biden or or billionaire independent, you know, uh, Bloomberg. And she thought she might be able to be in the middle because she's someone that maybe the establishment could get behind, and maybe the Sanders people could also support. But um, once Bloomberg was out, the idea of, one, having a broker convention was less likely. And um, also a broker convention c- could pick someone else to unify that party. Right, and I yeah. think she made the right call there, because apparently, Eric, 70 years old, Elizabeth Warren 70, is pretty young for a presidential candidate these days. Right. She can have another run in four years at a young 74. And inherit this Bernie Sanders support. She doesn't want to antagonize them by siphoning off votes that otherwise would go to Sanders mm-hmm. here.
0: Well, I think I think for Warren, uh, the part of the issue was, in, and this shows in the primary that her trying to fall in between uh, uh, the the more liberal progressive side of the party and the more moderate side of the party. There's just not enough people there. She has to pull from both of those areas, and and those were those votes were firmly behind Sanders. Or they were firmly behind uh, Biden and some to Bloomberg. And there just was not enough left over. I, I just think that her, her range of appeal all along has been uh, uh, very difficult because it's just not broad enough for her to get enough traction. If you think about this, 14 months ago, uh, she was considered a front runner in the race. Yeah, she was number one uh, in the right. national and, and, polls and if you for go back and look at her career, uh, she has been much more of a moderate. Uh, over her career, and these more kind of progressive elements have come in uh, uh, as she's gotten more engaged in politics, and so I think, though that it, her trying to find a place, it, it's it's certainly much more advanced than say a Kamala Harris who could not find her bearings and right. and and, uh, and her appeal within the party. Warren has some appeal, yeah, but really. it, but it just the the competition here it's just not broad enough of an appeal uh, to
1: garner the votes that she needed. I will say it was a a decent Super Tuesday for her. She broke 15% in five states. That was Maine, Massachusetts, uh, Colorado, Minnesota, and Utah. So that's not nothing. She was starting to get delegates. She had once led in the national polls. But you know I like predictions, Eric. Elizabeth Warren is running for president again in another cycle. We haven't seen the end of her uh, and the end of, of her running for president. So it looks like it's—first we to, first of all, if you say it's a two-person race, Tulsi Gabbard supporters don't like that. Right. Tulsi yeah.
0: Gabbard's still in it. We, we may get some mail, uh, some people. Yeah, we don't other.
1: want to upset because yeah. I actually—I I like Tulsi Gabbard. I think she was good for the debates. She, she's very impressive that she's been a rep so young and served in the military. She just doesn't clearly have the, the, the numbers to make this—the uh, momentum towards being the nominee. So there's two— uh, candidates with a clear shot at this, Biden and Sanders. Um, what do you think of this matchup going forward? It looks a little bit like 2016 when it was Hillary Clinton it, it, versus Sanders. It
0: does. I, I think there's there's two things that we have to look at coming out of Super Tuesday, two data points that help us to kind of look ahead. Uh, one, one is that uh, the, the late voters that, that broke for Biden, Uh, I think that is a signal of some things to come. I mean, we can look at a state like Minnesota, uh, which led the way where 53 percent of the voters uh, for for votes for Biden came as late. They they came people decided between the South Carolina primary and the time that they pulled the lever or pushed the button on the voting machine. Um, So that that was evidently the Klobuchar effect with her announcing and throwing her support behind behind him being very popular uh, in that state. Uh, note, too, that that Warren didn't have to do that for Biden to win Massachusetts. So even though Warren's very popular uh, in Massachusetts, it, uh, yeah. I, again, uh, mainstream Democrats seeing her as as a potential, a, as a, uh, a, a nominee to run against Trump. I think there were some challenges there. Yeah, yeah. I, but, I, don't, I don't
1: think that's a great matchup. R- right. Her. So
0: if you move down the list and you look at, California, uh, 25% swung late for Biden. Oh. Uh, uh, you look at uh, Texas, 16%. You look at Massachusetts, 19%. So within those three days, the swing of people who made up their mind uh, based on those who voted early, those who voted late, there was a significant swing in terms of uh, people deciding for Biden uh, in that uh as they went to vote, uh, as they were yeah. preparing to vote. So I, I, think for the upcoming primaries, and at least when you look at at the the numbers, you know the, the odds as we're looking at right now, uh, that definitely favors Biden. Uh, I think it, it it favors him because the voting demographic in primaries uh, is very different. Uh, the challenge for Sanders, and this is the other data point I want to want to identify, is that. He 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 needs that younger vote. He he's relied on that in his wins. Uh, He relied on that in 2016. The problem was that in the primary on Super Tuesday, uh, those numbers didn't hold up. Mm -hmm. And so actually, in some of those states, uh, he ended up having less turnout. So just a couple of examples. Uh, Alabama, for instance, uh, only 10% of the voters on Super Tuesday were in the 17 to 29 range compared to 14% in 2016. Mm -hmm. Tennessee, another example, 11% showed up on Tuesday versus 15% in 2016. So this was a pattern. Uh, Not all the states were that way, but enough of them were that way to actually look, uh, to really kind of give us a glimpse ahead of if Biden was to get the nomination, how challenging this might be. Uh, some some uh, statisticians on this have said that the turnout among youth, that age range from 17 to 29, would have to equal the turnout that Barack Obama had among African-Americans for Sanders to beat Trump. And so I, I think what we're seeing is the, the this reliance on the, the the youth vote, which tends, as, as as we know, looking back over elections and looking at turnout, that waivers. It, it's, it's never consistent. Uh, it is, it's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And so when you're relying on that to be a major percentage and kind of a stronghold uh, to get the votes you need in a primary or even in a general election, uh, it becomes very challenging to win. And I think that's where we saw Sanders lose some ground. That wasn't the only area that I think he lost ground, but it was certainly a major one that I think his campaign was counting on that. Vote actually increasing.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Turnout is huge in, in analysis, analyzing a lot of these races. And um, Sanders depends on that young support. I mean, his support amongst young Democrats is huge. You know, it's, it's almost half, uh, whereas he suffers with the older crowd and that's interesting because he's one of the oldest (laughs) candidates and he has the the young support Uh, looking forward there's going to be six more states this week on the Democratic side that's Idaho Michigan Mississippi Missouri North Dakota is one of the only four that do caucuses still they'll have one and then the great state of Washington will happen Um, if you go back uh, 2016 um, Bernie did win four of these Uh, But the big one is Michigan, 125 delegates there. And that's a state that he barely came out on top in last time. Uh, He had 49.7% of the popular vote. Hillary had 48.3%, a spread of 1.4%. So you can see how Michigan is going to be the real big one this week. If Sanders wants to have a shot at this, he's going to need to start winning these close states he did pull Michigan out last time, so it's quite possible he could pull it out this time. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of momentum behind Biden here.
0: Right, and, and I agree. I think Michigan's the, the key. It, it, if, if he can't win in Michigan, uh, then it, it's it's really the beginning of the end. I, I just don't think there's enough momentum post-Michigan. He, he needs some little burst of uh, a, a, a win here, a, a, enough to keep his campaign going, and to and, and to think that those numbers are going to continue to increase, and so and I think there's a possibility. I mean, his numbers in the last few days are have inched back up a little bit post Super Tuesday, but Biden is increasing as well. So with the uh, with Bloomberg dropping out and with some of the other support that he received from some of the the other candidates, uh, you see those those people uh, switching and identifying with Biden, and and where where that ends up, we'll, we'll see because we just don't we don't have. Now this is a uh, uh, you say three person race it, Gabbard's still in there yes correct so but it, really going into Michigan it's two people sure, and we it's don't with the momentum we don't have the
1: it. clear polling with all those other candidates out at this point I have trouble seeing Sanders dropping out I think he uh, yeah, goes uh, to the convention yeah. one he's been this is his movement he's seventy eight he's been doing this uh, he doesn't want to disappoint his supporters and does, his supporters give him money I mean they give him the machine to go out there not only is he trying to be the president, but he's also trying to get his message out there. So um, I think he's going to keep on going here. Um, So it's, it's, he's going to have to win states to have a shot here, but I don't see him dropping out. I see him continuing to plug away regardless. He's going to win some states, so he's going to have a reason. And uh, tell me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to be politically incorrect. I know Texas doesn't like politically incorrect. I, 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 I should be politically correct the whole time. We're dealing with, Men, accomplished men who are now 78 and 77 going on 78. I checked male life expectancy in the U.S. It is 78. Um, So this idea of drop out to a 78 year old, I mean, just the health issues. um, uh, Biden has a number of health issues. If you look in his, his record, aneurysms and all these things. Bernie just had a heart attack earlier in the campaign. I mean, if I'm any one of these people, I just in the back of my head going, well, maybe even if I'm not on pace to get a majority of delegates and Biden's on pace to get a majority of delegates, let me stick around here if I got money to do so. Right. Right. Well, and I I think that
0: Sanders, if 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 it's the inevitability that Biden would get the nomination, you think back to 2016, he had a tremendous impact on the party and on, on the way the party uh, responded to uh, his movement. Uh, and so there, there was a significant impact, probably that, that certainly wanted much more of an impact. The problem was is that Donald Trump won the election. And I think that one thing that, that, that Sanders would be focused on if, if it is inevitable that he doesn't get the nomination is if Biden wins the White House, uh, that there's an opportunity to have an impact uh, whether it's legislatively, but then also within the future of the party going forward. Uh, you know, Biden has indicated one-term presidency. Uh, you know, we can take that at face value at this point, but know that, hey, you're right. People get into office. It's, it's the position. It's the power. If his health is there, who's to say he doesn't run for a second term? But if he does get into office, there, there is some significant work that has to be done within the party in some way uh, to address some of these divisions, and I think it's cri- it would be critical on a, uh, any administration, Democratic administration, to uh, begin to try to address uh, some of those issues. And I'll, uh, we, we see the result of that from post-2016, uh, the challenges that have come into the primary and where we thought, okay, we might be headed toward a brokered convention. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, that's always something that hindsight's better than foresight in looking at how these dynamics change internally within parties and then sets them up to be either successful or not in a midterm election and then into into the next general election.
1: Some thoughts here, Eric. Um, I do think there's talk about will Sanders, you know, drop out, will he yield? I think he will if it's the pledged delegates that put Biden over the top, whether that's a first round or second round. He doesn't want the superdelegates to be the thing that puts someone over the top. He views that as very unfair. But if it's the pledge delegates out of the state primaries and caucuses, I think he can yield to Biden. He knows Biden. They have a working relationship in there, and he may have just lost it fair and square if it's the pledge delegates, not the superdelegates. The matchup against Trump, I'm sure we'll talk about it, especially Mm -hmm. if that's the matchup. I make Trump the favorite against Biden. I'm not Mm -hmm. big on Biden. The real threat was was Bloomberg, who I thought was the better matchup for them. But the Democratic Party said, no, we don't want independent Michael Bloomberg being our nominee. We want one of our own. So if it was a good week for Biden, it's a good week for Trump. I think that's a better matchup for him than Bloomberg. The last thing, and this is something I just came across, I actually read the rulebook book for Democratic delegation selection process. It was very interesting mm-hmm. right. to, to write in there. You, you have spare time to do Yeah, that, yeah, right yeah. <laughs> so here's an interesting, I mentioned the whole 78-year-old thing. When, when these campaigns stop, they specifically don't end their campaign. They, quote-unquote, suspend the campaign. If someone is no longer a candidate, those delegates get reallocated to the people who are above 15% in the district and the state. Those delegates are lost if you end your campaign. So they suspend them meaning they hold on to the delegates they've gotten. I don't know. Maybe an expert could tell me if I'm wrong. But if there was, you know, if very unfortunate, if someone passed on here, they're no longer a candidate. The delegates, go, you have to go back in time to get rid of those, that person, reallocate to the people above 15%. I mean, that would be a wild scenario because if it's a health issue like that, you don't suspend your campaign. That's off the table. You actually have to go back and reallocate to those above fifteen percent. I just came across that quirky rule thing. Um, you know, and maybe I <laughs> you're right, you're right. <laughs> maybe well, I, maybe in, I shouldn't in, go there. <laughs> it, well, in the in the event that nothing happens of that nature, so
0: we'll we'll let's we'll look on the positive side of it. But you also see some of the candidates who did win, so like Buttigieg Judge or Bloomberg, who uh, Will line up behind uh, that that have already uh, announced their support for Biden, and so what we may see is the swing in some of the delegates uh, when they get to the convention. If if it's very clear that Biden's very close to having the the number that he needs, mm-hmm. that that some of these delegates may swing within the states, so that sure. state delegation then allocates. Uh, more of its uh, delegates to one over the other. And those are the internal sure. dynamics within each delegation and the process that goes on within those delegations leading up to the convention.
1: Well, just look at California. There are only two above 15 percent. It was Sanders and Biden. Right. Um, if you have to go back and reallocate, Sanders gets all of them, right? So, I mean, this is not a situation where... The party can just select someone else, give it from Biden right. to so You have to go back to those Super Tuesday results, allocate it to the people above 15%. Sanders, you know, is, I mean, so, I mean, just put that on people's radars in the, right. you know, yes. unlikely event. So, yes. very interesting. We're going to keep our eyes on the presidential race, it's ongoing. Um, but Super Tuesday wasn't just president, Eric. There were some senators, primary for Senate races, primary for House races primary for state representatives. So we're going to come back after the break and talk more Super Tuesday results that were non-presidential in nature. Stay tuned, more with Cogley and Morrow after the break. Tea for
0: Texas. Tea for tea Texas for is a Texas-based tea. history podcast from historian tea Dr. Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Tea Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Politics can be confusing, but Cogliamaro have your back. Follow them on Facebook, search Cogliamaro on Politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogliamaro is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. For this second segment of the show, our focus turns to election results in Texas mm-hmm. uh, following Super Tuesday. So we have some interesting uh, races, and Texas is always an interesting state to look at in this process, uh, not only because of the changes in voter turnout, uh, the, the demographics that that, that apply, that. From a primary compared to a general election, right. uh, which uh, uh, favors certain groups, demographics, even certain parties in some parts of the state, uh, but also uh, really starts to give us a, a glimpse of what the makeup of the Texas legislature will be and the Texas delegation to the U.S. Congress. That's right. And so that has been something that has been in flux, and it's something it, it's important. And this is especially for our listeners here locally and talking about elections in Texas. Uh, this, is, this is something that has been changing. It's also, we are turning here to a, uh, what will be a post-census uh, Texas legislature, which means redistricting. And so redistricting is always a contentious process in Texas. It's driven by those in office, those that are elected, uh, and it always ends up being challenged in the courts. It takes us several years to work out these maps, so there's some flux that goes on following this. But these elections, uh, the, the primaries, and then so, some of the races, which will be in runoffs, uh, really start to give us a glimpse about how all that may line up in the coming legislative session in 2021. So as we reflect on this election uh, and look at the different levels of it, the, uh, the, the race for U.S. Senate, uh, the uh, Texas legislature the, and, and the Texas Senate, uh, what are some of the things Nathaniel coming out of Super Tuesday uh, that that you saw as interesting, or perhaps being uh, that I'm the the Texas one yeah, here yeah, that uh, there's some questions that you have that uh, here, that so. I can
1: uh, maybe enlighten you and our listeners about and Texas politics. That. So you know, I've been here four years, I'm learning all the time, but I certainly not a not a native. So when we look at a state ride race, um, so senators are only up for election once every six years. A third of them come up every two years. Uh, two years ago, Ted Cruz was on the ballot. He's not on the ballot. This time Is John Cornyn. And um, John Cornyn easily won the nomination of the Republican Party for another term. But on the Democratic side, that was more of a contest. We see Mary Hagar with 22.3%. We see Royce West with 14.5%. According to, to the Texas uh, primary rules, you need a majority. So the, these two will go on to a May 26 runoff. Voters can only vote for that Democratic primary runoff if they voted Democrat the first time. You can't uh, do Republican one round and then Democrat another round. So it's going to be Mary Hegar versus Royce West to decide who's going to be the Democratic nominee to challenge John Cornyn. And we've had shows where we've talked about, you know, is, is Texas going to go blue? Uh, I don't think Texas is there yet. But um, here's a test. This is a statewide race, and uh, we see that there's going to be a new nominee for the Democrats to take on John Cornyn.
0: Right, and and this is one that will probably continue to be uh, won by Republicans. One, especially for Cornyn, given his status in the Senate, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's quite significant. Uh, One of the things that you'll see, and this just goes back to general elections, uh, you start to see a little bit of it in the primaries, um, uh, in terms of turnout. But when you look at the general elections, where Uh, You have you've had in Texas up till now the straight ticket voting option that that's gone away even though it's being uh, challenged in the courts. Uh, But your vote totals oftentimes for statewide races for Republicans will be much larger uh, in that you have people that will split their, their ballot. They'll, they'll vote Republican in, in certain races. They'll vote for Democrats in others. And so that, that phenomenon in Texas, uh, the political culture here, the, the level of, of uh, 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 economic and social conservatism that aligns itself often with Republican candidates, uh, that, that's still very strong here, especially in the congressional representation. Uh, and, and more specifically the Senate. So I don't, I don't see that is going to have any difficulty uh, in winning re-election.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see who the nominee is for the Democrats right. and what that spread is. Uh, that one's going to a runoff, and we'll keep our eyes on it. Uh, when we turn to the House of Representatives, um, 36 districts in Texas, so that's a lot to analyze. Um, there had been six Republicans retiring. Currently, the Republicans have 23 House representatives, and the Democrats have 13 out of Texas. Two of these retirements for Republicans are in very Republican districts. So the question of who's going to be the new nominee for the Republican Party is basically close to being the question of who's going to be the next representative. So we're looking at Texas' 11th, which is one we're very familiar with. That's Mike mm-hmm. Conaway's district. We know him here at Tarleton State. He, he's a local representative. This is a 32-point a, a Republican district, very safe seat. But he's retiring. And so when we look at that 11th district on the Republican side, lots of candidates in that district. Right. And it turns out it's going to be August Pfluger. I may say the name wrong. It's P.F. It starts with P.F. But he won an outright victory. He got 52.1 percent. There will be no runoff. August Pfluger will be the Republican nominee for representative out of Texas's District 11. And I don't want to upset any Democrats, but likely the next representative to the U.S. Congress, because it is a district that leans so Republican. I did a little bit of research. I found him, you know, he, he served in the military and also president trump endorsed him so that may have been a big thing to to put him way above the rest of this field
0: right and and the, the the challenges with a race like this where you have someone like conaway that's been in office for a long time and you have a whole new field of candidates those endorsements are very very critical it's also about money it's about how much you spend to get name recognition out there because while you may be known in one part of the district in a community or a city where uh, you've worked and lived. It's it's very challenging as you move further out in the district. But that in, I think that endorsement was key. I think the uh, resources are key. And of course, this is a seat that will remain uh, Republican at least through this redistricting cycle. We'll see. Right. I, I mean, I don't I don't see where it is in the, in the the boundaries of it changing enough that it would change
1: uh, the district uh, in the short term. Well, you're right that the number is not necessarily tied to a specific geography when right. they redraw mm-hmm. the map we may need to rethink how these districts match up with party alignment texas is 13 was also a very republican district with a incumbent retiring that was mac thornberry's seat in the 13th and over here eric we're going to have a runoff it's going to be josh weingarner who got 38.9 against ronnie jackson that's a big may 26 showdown because the winner And that showdown is in a very good position to become uh, a member of the House of Representatives.
0: Yes. So this is some of some of these races. And this is an example of where uh, uh, the the right mix of things doesn't favor one candidate over another. And you thus you do have the runoff. And we've we've got a number of races like this in in Texas, uh, especially in these seats where you have veteran uh, uh, members of Congress retiring.
1: We look at some four other retirements are districts that we, there's a Republican incumbent, but these districts have been tightening over recent cycles. There's been uh, that phrase, uh, uh, "Texodus" or something, something about <laughs> yeah, some, um, and that there may have been some. You know, these the, the the representatives themselves haven't said I'm worried about losing, but some of the headlines yeah. have said, way well, they might be worried this this seat's becoming a little too competitive." Uh, Texas is 17th. Bill Flores is going to be a closer race this cycle. And we see on the 17th, there's going to be a runoff on both sides. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be Rick Kennedy versus David Jaramillo on the Democratic side and Pete Sessions versus Renee Swan on the Republican side. Being a close district, we should expect a lot of competition on both sides, both the Democratic runoff and the Republican runoff. Right. Yes. And this I think this is a a picture of Texas
0: politics to come. I think Mm. in in many districts, we're going to start to see this. Uh, some of it's becoming like when we, we, we talk more local here and we look at Texas uh, legislative districts. It's uh, it, it's the challenges within the Republican Party where you have people who are trying to be further to the right uh, or further to the left in, in, in some cases. But here in the Republican Party, it's some that want to out-conservative uh, the, the incumbent or, or other the other candidates because those are the words that are that people are attracted to
1: in district 22 it's another one that that's been tightening in recent years where the republican incumbent is retiring and over here we see the democratic uh nominee is set it's Shri kulkarni uh 53.1 whereas on the republican side there needs to be a runoff between troy nels and kathleen wall um, this is an advantage to the Democrat because they've secured up nomination months, a couple months in advance of the Republican. They can start focusing on the general now, whereas these two Republicans need to have a runoff for two months. Right. Always an advantage if you can win in the
0: primary and not have to go to a runoff. The the resources uh, and, and really the turnout, the turnout mm-hmm. for the runoffs usually is much, much less uh, than than the primary. And so it can be a matter of of uh, of just a small
1: margin of votes that one wins or loses in these runoff elections. Texas's 23rd uh representative Will Hurd is retiring and if you look at this is southwest of Texas near the border if you look at Will Hurd's record he barely won this district like by like a half percent, 1%, mm-hmm. um and and that was kind of very good for the Republican party that he was in this area with a lot of democrats barely winning this district holding on to it. He's decided to retire. Um, This this district is very open to the Democrats uh, Mm -hmm. maybe getting it looks like Gina Jones won an outright victory for the Democratic nomination. That sets her up well. And on the Republican side, there was no outright victor. We're going to have a runoff between Tony Gonzalez and Paul Reyes. I would say that is a very Hispanic district. And so we do see on the Republican side uh, two Hispanic names, Tony Gonzalez and Raul Reyes. Uh, so maybe they might be able to be appealing mm-hmm. to that district. But again, they got a runoff while that Democrat uh, is ready to go for the general already. Right. And, and look at the turnout. Look at the numbers uh, for the Democratic
0: candidates in terms of turnout. This, I think, is a sign here that if the turnout is good in the general election, which this helps candidates uh, in this cycle when you have a presidential election. So turnout is key. I think the Democrats have a possibility of gaining this seat.
1: The other um, Republican who's retired in, in a district that's been closing of recent years is Kenny Marchant, and he represents the DFW Airport area uh, in the 24th district. Uh, he's retiring, and we look at what's going on there. On that side, it's the opposite. The Republican has won outright nomination. Beth Van Dunn at 66.4%. That's a very strong showing. And on the Democratic side, we're going to need a runoff between Kim Olsen and Kendis Valenzuela. Um, so again, we'll go, we have another close race to watch mm-hmm. there as we go forward. I will say there's also two districts where I think the Democrats are on defense. Um, last cycle in the normal turn of events, midterm, opposition year. In a non-presidential year, the opposition party does well. And then coming into a presidential year, both sides turn out. So there are a couple Democrats who are first term representatives. Republicans should have better turnout compared to Democrats than was two years ago. And so I'm also looking at that seventh district, Eric, where we have a Democratic incumbent, Lizzie Fletcher, but that's a ripe seat for the Republicans to pick up one. We saw Lizzie Fletcher win her um, nomination outright and Wesley Hunt, a Republican, win the nomination outright. That's an a race I'm keeping my eye on. There's more Republican seats on defense than Democrats, but there's a couple, a couple Democratic seats that are on defense too. And the other district that the Democrats are going to be on defense is Texas's 32nd district. Uh, incumbent Colin Alred uh, is, is one renomination. That's a Democrat, but on the Republican side, they have a chance to pick up this seat. And we're going to see a very close runoff there. Genevieve Collins uh, is did go over the top and have a majority of 52.6%. So there's not going to be a runoff there. It's Colin Alred versus Genevieve Collins. That's another seat to keep your eye on. Now, Eric, as we transition from the Texas delegation to the House of Representatives and we look at the state legislature, we had a particularly interesting case locally in District 59. Incumbent is J.D. Sheffield. Uh, he's a friend of Tarleton. We know him well here. Uh, but um, it's not usual for an incumbent Incumbents can get in runoffs, but to not come in first place in that first round, Shelby Slauson came in at at 40-something percent. Um, We've seen her signs all around town. I've met her. Very impressive showing for Shelby Slauson. She ran for a county judge a while ago and lost to Alfonso Campos, but she's back. She's ready to serve. She had a very good first round. There will be a runoff here between Shelby Slauson and J.D. Sheffield. Any thoughts on our own, District 59, which is making news around Texas? Right.
0: So, so I think part of this is the unique nature of this district, where Sheffield is from Gatesville. Of course, he's known throughout the district now uh, because of his terms in office. But uh, so Slauson being from the more populous, uh, one of the more populous areas of the county, I think that's one element of this uh, in terms of backing when you look at the voter turnout. Uh, on the other side of it, uh, I think this is another one of those races where uh, you see candidates that are trying to be the, the, the better conservative, uh, mm-hmm. at least the way the campaigning went yeah, on this and seeing both the social media, uh, online, um, and, and this is where that appeal to people to say, well, I'm, I'm more conservative. I'll, I'll protect this. I'll do that. I, it, re- it reminded me just quickly to add this as I had a classmate of mine from junior high that was running... In a race in the Metroplex area, and uh, he was running on those on that basis. Uh, he, he didn't win. the 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 person who uh, received the nomination in the primary. Uh, was was supported by so many different groups. Even the Dallas Morning News came out in, in support of her uh, because of her experience and because of her position on policy issues, not that she was saying, well, I'm more conservative on this or conservative on that. And, and so uh, I think that's a challenge in these races, and it's how that appeals to the voters. Are the voters in tune with specific issues, or are they in tune as we want to protect a particular viewpoint or position and can somebody sell themselves on that better than the other and I think that's some of the dynamic that we're seeing in this uh, campaign that will now lead or primary that lead to a runoff
1: yeah and the runoff is is probably going to decide the representative this is a very yes. uh, Republican yes. area very interesting district and the geography of the district um, something that uh, local people will be voting in. So the Shelby Slauson versus J.D. Sheffield runoff, making news around Texas. In our final minutes, Eric, I'd like to point out that it wasn't only Texas that had primaries. California, my home state, had primaries. And I had called this one. I've been on the radio saying this because it has national ramifications. Nancy Pelosi has never faced a fellow Democrat in November before. She's always faced the Republican easy to beat um, this is the first time in California's top two system it's possible to have a Democrat versus Democrat, and actually of their 53 districts, five of them are going to be Democrat versus Democrat, including Nancy Pelosi's own district. She's going to run off against a Democratic socialist, a Bernie Sanders-supporting Stanford Conlaw law, graduate, very articulate person. It has national ramifications because Pelosi is in a lock for re-election right now. She's got to defend against a Bernie Sanders Democratic Socialist in a district where Bernie's very popular. This will start making headlines. It will. It will. So we'll have to come back to that, though, and because we're out of time today. Mm-hmm. So we thank you
0: for joining us. Uh, we'll move all over the nation, Texas to California, uh, and continue to do so as we move toward the general election uh, right here on Cogley and Morrow on Politics. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast
1: with production from A.J.
0: Heier and Taylor Welch.
1: Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.